Transformationist is dedicated to real stories of transformation and the insights and actions that make it possible. Our guests share from their own stories, the strategies and experiences that can help you shape transformation in your own life. Whether you are changing your mind, responding to change, or designing a life different from what you have right now, my hope is that these stories will inspire you and help you on the way. Hi, I'm Tash McGill, and welcome to The Transformationist. There's often such a difference between the external world, the exterior world that we live in, and the internal world that we inhabit in our thoughts and in our day-to-day reflection on what's happening around us. And there's probably nobody better suited to explain that difference than somebody who uh, is is a professional at creating other worlds for people. Uh, Today on the Transformation Podcast, it's a pleasure to have Catherine Sylvester joining us. She is an actress, a writer, TV presenter, She's done award-winning kids radio. She's a woman of many talents and she's joining us today to talk about her transformation story and the journey between uh, those internal and external worlds. Welcome. Thank you for joining us, Catherine. Thanks for having me, Tash. So uh, tell me a little bit about what your world is. It's um, obviously you do a lot of things. You've got a lot of talents, um, but but what does that look like in your day-to-day life now? <laughs> you made me sound so good before. Um, <laughs> a lot of my day-to-day life at the moment is I've got two young girls. They're eight and nine. So I have, I have a lot of at-home time, um, but I still I still get to do a bit of radio Um sort of putting my boots back in with acting and presenting and just sort of, you know, they've got to that age now where I can branch out and get back into things, doing a bit more writing and, um, yeah, just tr- just trying to get some traction. I took quite a big pause in, in work, which will come out, I'm sure, what, you know, what we're talking today, why. And, um, and so I'm in a place now where I feel like I want to get back into it. I have something to offer and I'm confident enough to kind of put myself back out there again. So um, I'm always I'm always interested to know how people arrive at the place that they that they do. Uh, how did, did you always know that you wanted to be um, you know a performer? Was that something that was that something that was evident to you from a from a young age, or was it something that you stumbled into? How did you find your way there? <laughs> I think it was evident to everyone, especially my poor mother. Um, I was the child at seven years old who had the lead in the play, but was worried I didn't have enough lines. Um, (laughs) I had all the lines that I still wanted more um so I wasn't I wasn't very shy I was quite outgoing I was quite confident um it's really funny though that you know that was the persona I had as a child and then then life happens and teenage years happen and I pursued that and kept doing that and that's what I wanted to do wanted to perform wanted to act um but the confidence didn't stay up there. It took me a really long time to realise that. For all intents and purposes, I appeared the same and I appeared to be really confident and really outgoing and all of that. So the the external facade stayed the same, but, but you know, my confidence got eroded in my teen years, as sadly so often happens. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I used all sorts of things to try and cope with that. And hindsight's great. I didn't realise at the time. If anyone said, you know, Oh, you're so confident. I would have said, yes, of course. <laughs> but um, I think my lack of confidence wasn't on stage. It was um, 
it was in the day-to-day, it was in, you know, interpersonal relationships. Um, wasn't very certain of myself. I felt like I was always too much for everyone or not enough. Um, Ooh, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to articulate that at the time and it took took a long time to be able to realise that's what it was. Um, but the desire to perform or to speak or um, to write has always been there and that's my sweet spot. I was talking to someone recently, I had to get up and speak with five minutes notice and I was like, yeah, great, bring it on, like I love it. And they're like, are you, are you crazy? I'm like, no, that's my sweet spot. Their sweet spot was sitting and talking to people and really like having, you know, that deep relationship and helping them walk through things. And and to me, I'm like, really, you like that? <laughs> it's a great thing is we're all so different. <laughs> I, uh, it sounds like you um, are probably a little like me where, uh, I, I mean, I love to be prepared for, I love to be prepared for speaking in front of any kind of audience, you know, maybe it's if it's 20 or if it's 5,000, but I, um, I actually love the thrill of being able to pull something off with short notice. I, 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 I love that, <laughs> which is probably terrible. I just, I, I, there's not, I've, I, I can remember maybe in one instance ever being intimidated by the thought of standing up in front of a crowd. Um, what was it? Um, can you share? Uh, <laughs> I, I can share. Um, it was, um, it was something that I, it was a room of intimidating people because it was at an event called Refactor, which is, um, a sort of a, it's a gathering for New Zealand women in tech. I mean, it's not really, it's, well, it's not really limited to tech and it's not really limited to women, um, although that, that is the dominant audience. Um, but yeah, it was, and, and I was intimidated because I thought I've got no room, I've got no room to BS on the stage because these people mm. really know, they really know you know they know quality yes. they know they know what's they know what works they know what doesn't and so that was that was probably the first time in a long time that I remember feeling intimidated but how did you go I think it went okay you're okay <laughs> afterwards you felt okay about it oh yeah I'll back myself do you know the interesting thing is that <laughs> I a long time ago in my career started in radio yeah and um when I and it's still my first love. It's what's brought me back to podcasting, uh, and yet that probably the time that I get the most nervous when it comes to just using my voice is yeah. hardly ever standing up in front of a room full of people. But it's when I go back and it's just me and the microphone and whoever's on the other end of the phone. Uh, yeah. When you've been in those talkback situations, and that's that's the time that I'm like, oh, I know that I'm I know that I'm getting sharper in that moment because uh, I'm having to use all of my skills to to listen and to think and to produce and to direct the conversation uh, in the in the direction that I that I want to go. So it's just and it's just so interesting. And even though it's daunting, though, I think you know, for for people like you and me, there's a thrill to that daunting. It's like that exciting daunting, eh? Rather than sheer terror, please don't make me do this kind of a thing. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. It's a it's yeah. a positive, you know, it's that positive provocation. I think that it pushes yeah. us out into the into the into the deep zone, and there aren't necessarily that many opportunities um, if you're able to. Uh, I think you know if if you're if you're able to get over any of the if you're able to get over the general insecurity that I think comes hand in hand with being any kind of a performer or broadcaster any kind of producer of content or work if you're able to get over that and then if you're able to get over um 
the the confidence to back yourself mm. and delivering content that matters and then if you're able to you know get over the fact that there are so um that there are limited opportunities you know all the world yes. is stage but there is not room for everybody on that stage yeah you know i feel like by the time you get to that point you've done so much work that you can't not take the risk um you can't take you can't not take the risk and enjoy that moment and enjoy and savor everything in that moment because you know it's a rare opportunity for professional development i think i used to just ruthlessly air check myself back in the days of radio you know i'd, pull <laughs> my, I'd finish my show at 11 o'clock at night i'd pull my air check tape back in the days when we used cassettes i'd pull the cassette out and i would put it into my car stereo and listen to it on the way home because oh my gosh i never did i did i haven't even watched half the shows i've done i, and I find <laughs> I find that really interesting and it just, you know, different personalities. For me, the, thr the thrill is in the doing of it and especially when I was younger, if I listened back to myself or even reread something too much or watched something I've done, you know, I had a tendency to pick out all the bits I didn't like and I know that that could be turned into a positive, like how can I improve? Um, yeah. yeah. But, I, but I, it would get me down and I would see, and, and to be honest, back in the day it was how did I look? What did I look like? Oh my gosh, I didn't. I didn't like how I looked. Or, um, but the the thrill, the thrill in it, and there is something to be said for taking your work and getting better. So, but the thrill in it for me has always been in that moment. Like I got to go to Chicago a few years ago and do improv, and train doing improv at Second City. What a mind blowing experience that must have been. It was out of this world. It was amazing because I realised. I, I mean, I knew a long time ago I'm not a dramatic actress. I mean, I can do it. I can do it. My sweet zone is comedy. It's off the cuff. It's a little bit weird. I like doing wacky characters or just kind of, you know, real quirky people. I, and I just loved it. And then I sat and cried because I realized there's none here. Well, there's not a lot here. You know, you're talking about, you know, uh, whereas Chicago is just like there's so many improv places. And, but it just, and I think I love that about improv. And that's probably why I like getting up on stage and, and having an idea of what I'm going to talk about. But, but you can roll with it. I love that freshness. Um, my brain starts firing. Um, but, yeah, part of it too is I just didn't like, I didn't like looking at myself probably either. And, and, you, and you know, listening to myself. I was kind of like, oh, well, I've done it now. There's nothing I can do. <laughs> it's done. <laughs> which, which I think is probably really healthy. I think I love radio because I don't have to look at myself. Uh, and, um, but I, yeah, I, it's so interesting. I, I think I, the way I grew up was <clears throat> you can always do better. What can you learn from that? You can always do better. What can you learn from that? Yeah. And, and I'm a four on the Enneagram. So I love any opportunity. You're a what? Uh, you're a <laughs> well, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, um, personality, um, no. sort of structure. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm a four, which is basically, I love any opportunity for a little bit of melancholy. Um, oh, okay. And so listening, <laughs> listening back to my own my own tapes and giving myself critique was about the best way to just get my daily fix of my daily <laughs> fix of depression. <laughs> but I always did as well. It was better for me to be telling myself what I could improve on than to wait for somebody else to. I, I have a friend of mine who's a preacher who has to this day never listened back to any of his own messages. And he's been and he's been teaching for thirty years, and I'm like, oh mate, like, <laughs> I mean, admiration for the full confidence to just you know keep blazing down the path, but also how how interesting. Anyway, but, then, but just in saying that, 
I do, as I'm going, as I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm very aware, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or, oh, yeah, that was good, do that again, or um, I'm not good at multitasking in my day-to-day life, but when I'm performing or I'm on air or something, I'm quite good at it, and I can go, oh, that didn't work, I need to turn my face that way for the light, or I need to... I need to, oh, I should have said that line there, that would have worked or given them that space to do that. So I kind of, I'm probably critiquing as I go mm. and then moving on. But, but yeah. And, and where else do we get this crap about, hey, we don't want to look at ourselves? I mean, we're fantastic. But I think when, you, I think when you're younger, you know, for me when I was younger, and I look back at myself then, now, and I go, oh, darling, you had nothing to worry about. <laughs> What were you worried about? You know, but just, I think that's what I was saying before. I don't know where my confidence went over the years. So you talked about, um, you talked about in those moments as your confidence was eroded earlier in life, um, you talked about coping techniques. What, what were the, what were the things that, um, what were the things that became evident as a result of that kind of lack of confidence or the environment that you were in? Um, I start, I think part, part of, all of the things that I used as coping tools or um, things to get by along the way uh, were all trying to address the same underlying issue. So what started for me in my teen years was um, I really couldn't control my world, so I really controlled food, tried to control my body, and um, went down that road of of over over maybe eight, eight, nine years, various eating disorders. But um, I discovered at 15 that I could drink and handle my alcohol really well, which was a real badge of honour, sadly, at the time. Um, I was so desperately trying to fit in somewhere. I was a lifeguard and um, I could out drink the boys and you know, I was that real badge of honour. And I was, I was a wee feminist, so I was like, <laughs> how sad is this at 15? So I can do everything the boys can. <laughs> Well, I, don't, I don't know if drinking like the boat crew is a real badge of honour, but you know, um, and I and I, you know, I'd, they'd all go out and swim through the keyhole at Pihar, and I can do that. I'd go, and it took me years to go, but I don't want to go, and that's actually the power is I could, but I don't want to. But anyway, so well, I just, I mean, I just have to jump in there because, um, you know, I feel like I commit so much of my energy. I try to commit so much of my energy to um, fighting the patriarchy. In, in productive and healthy ways. And the thing that I always am surprised by is how hard women are prepared to work to find equality in a world that is designed by men. Like, how, yeah. how crazy is it what we will do to, um, to find acceptance in the boys' club to prove yeah. that we are equal, apart from it's like, no, 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 maybe we should just actually just have our own club or, or maybe even better, reimagine a world where men and women design what a productive and healthy society can look like together as opposed to you know one group having to have dominance or um sway over the other you know yes and and who's to say what's better you know for me it was it was I guess somewhere I thought that whatever was happening there was better um and, and it wasn't necessarily, but I didn't have a strong female group either. So again, I was trying to find a place and I wonder if that happens a lot as we're trying to find a place and and we see something that is, or like, oh, just take, for example, acting, right? And the men mm. overtly still make more money. Um, I mean, that's obviously a huge issue in Hollywood at the moment. So 
So in, in theory, getting paid for the work you do is a good thing. The more you get paid, the more you're valued, apparently. And so the men are valued more. That's, it's, it's, so, so in a real subconscious level, why, why wouldn't we aspire to that if that's the message we're getting? And, and yeah, I think absolutely. I think as a as a you know I was born in the seventies and it was still very um, this is the male role this is the female role my father was quite um, traditional in that aspect and so I pushed and I pushed against it because I just looked like a lot more fun <laughs> what the guys were doing but but I agree you know but it it doesn't need to be it doesn't have to be like that but I still see I still see radio lineups that are male heavy I still see um, male broadcasters creaming it you know um I still see I still see all this and and it is it is much more even I'm just reading a fabulous book on the studio era of Hollywood and the part that women played behind the scenes that's often left out of history and it's quite extensive but it's just not written in the 1970s history books that we started to read so but yeah anyway anyway I digress but 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 just really trying to find my place and and it looked more exciting what the guys were doing than what the and, and I didn't I didn't get along with the girls. The girls didn't like me very much, and so I kind of erred that way, and um, and uh, and got drunk a lot, basically. <laughs> as sad do as that think, is. Do you think it was the uh, Do you think it was the external confidence that you that you had still as a teenager? You know, that external confidence, but not the internal that meant you know other yeah. girls your age found it hard to relate to you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I did, I do, I did a little bit of modelling and stuff. And you know, I've I found in New Zealand at times that when you when you when you stick your neck out or your meerkat yeah. up a bit, it, it's not often appreciated. It's different nowadays. You know, I've got you know amazing friends who applaud each other when we do something. But 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 you know, in Howick in in nineteen eighty something. It wasn't, and I was excited by what I was doing. So I'd be like, hey, I'm doing this cool thing. And it must have come across as boasting, possibly. Or, um, yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Tash. Sorry for the brief interruption. We'll get right back to this episode in a second. But I wanted to say just a quick few things. The first is, I would love your help in spreading the word about this podcast. One of the ways you can do that is by subscribing and then rating and reviewing this podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you like to get your downloads from. And I'd like to offer you a little something in return. As a way of saying thanks and extending the conversation, one of my favorite authors, Brene Brown, has just released a great new book on leadership called Dare to Lead, putting in place some of the principles around shame and vulnerability that she talked about in her previous books, Rising Strong and Daring Greatly. So, rate, review, take a screenshot, share it to social media and tag me at Tash McGill, hashtag the transformationist. And I'll be giving away a transformationist prize pack with a few other goodies too each week for the next month or so. And lastly, thank you so much for investing your time and joining us on the journey so far. I am so appreciating it. Join us in the Facebook group to get even more snippets of conversation. Uh, I was just saying it's so interesting to me how you know, I think that really is that that cultural aspect of um, New Zealand. You know, we don't like people. We don't like anybody to stick too far out from the crowd. Um, you know, we really are so egalitarian that we'd rather have everybody be average than than have too many people be exceptional. And that is, I think, that's oh, such yeah. a cultural point of difference for us as new for for us as New Zealanders. You know, and for yeah. for me, I spend so much of my time working overseas and and you know with people from vastly different cultures that I sometimes have to remind myself to step out of that thinking. You know, about my own 
about my own excellence, about my own achievements. You yeah. Know, to say, actually, it's okay to say, I'm really good at this. Yeah. Um, so what happens when you, when you drink for a while? What happens when you're getting drunk as a teenager? What does that do to your internal world? Well, I don't think, I, I, I've heard it said that whatever age you start drinking at, like, or using something at, is kind of the emotional age you stay at. And that was that was true for me. Um, I never because I never had to deal with it. I never had to go to a social gathering and and be myself and, and be uncomfortable in that. Um, or uncomfortable that I didn't know anyone in the room or that I said things that were awkward sometimes. Um, because I was drinking and for the I mean gosh, for the first few years it was great fun and I could hold it and I was the life of the party and it was all great. Um, but that didn't stay that way. I'd say it was my early 20s when I was in drama school in Australia. It just started to get messy and I started to get messy and started to have nights where I couldn't remember what had happened or sadly I could remember what had happened and would have preferred not to and mm. was living a double life, you know, because when I was drinking I was one way that I would never have been sober and, um, and that eroded my confidence even more. And I, it was this really weird sense of not trusting myself. I, like, I didn't think I had a problem. So I'd be like, well, tonight when I go out, I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm just going to do ABC and I'm going to have this to drink and get home by this time. It's all going to be fine. And then that wouldn't happen. And so I didn't trust myself. Whereas, of course, I could trust myself. I just couldn't trust myself with copious amounts of alcohol in my system, which is... <laughs> Very different, you know, but it all got messed up in my head. Was I, I didn't, I, and I developed kind of phobias almost, almost, um, almost like OCD, really, in the true sense of the word, not just I like my house clean or something like that, but in the true sense of I wouldn't wear a certain ring out at night because last time I wore that ring out, something bad happened and it must be the ring's fault, not the two bottles of wine and eight beers I drank. So, um, you know, mentally it was tiring. Physically it was tiring. Spiritually it was tiring. And, um, you know, it just got messier and messier. And I I stopped for a while. I, I kind of knew I had a problem. but didn't really know what to do about it uh, until it got really messy. And a wonderful doctor asked me once. I went in and I wasn't well. And she said, how much are you drinking? And I told her and she said, hey, do you need help to stop? And I'm like, yeah, I actually think I do because I've gone past that point of no return where I had a job, I had a boyfriend, I had a car, I had friends. So I was very functioning, but my life was really a mess. And um, so I was so grateful for her seeing it, mm. being brave enough to ask me. And I was so read the timing was beautiful. I mean, and looking back in retrospect, how, how long do you think – or did you think for a time, how long were you aware that there was a problem um, before you were able to address it, before before the, the doctor kind of intervened in that moment with a, with a poignant question? Um, probably four years. Um, wow. Not, not all the time. Like I wouldn't think mm -hmm. about because I, of course, I found people who would drink with me. My friends were drinkers. I thought we were all the same till I went on holiday with my best mate, and she'd stop and I'd keep going. And I was like, oh, I, th mm. I, I thought we were the same. <laughs> and the pro probably four years. I know a couple of years before I stopped, I um, I stopped for six months and went into a 12-step program and, you know, in inverted commas, worked the program. But then I was like, oh, <laughs> I think I'd like a glass of wine. And I did. And, and I just went back down that track. 
So what what happened after the after the doctor asks the question and and you say yes? She was amazing. She, I mean, it would never happen nowadays probably for alcohol because all the centres are so full. But she got me into a program for two months, a live-in program, and um, wow. yeah, and I I went because because with addiction it's not, I mean pick your band-aid really it's not about really about the alcohol or the food or the drugs or the cigarettes or the relationship or the money it's about not dealing with life on life's terms it's about fear and anxiety it's about uh, what's going on underneath and I was just choosing and I've chosen many band-aids the amount of stuff I've had to give up (laughs) to be sane is ridiculous I mean even stuff like coca-cola or red bull or sugar which we'll get to but um but, you know, anything, anytime I'm not accepting life on life's terms, and that's not about lying back and being a lame duck and just, you know, bring it at me, but about not not fighting every step of the way and not dealing with what was really going on underneath, then anything I use, for me personally, I will always turn into an addiction. I'll always overindulge. That's been my pattern. Um so that that really helped. And that was 18 years ago, nearly, um, in October. And um, I've never regretted stopping. I never enjoyed one drink. I never saw any point in it. I remember being out with friends after I'd stopped and my friends sat on a glass of wine all night. And I was like, who are you? What are you? What is that you're doing? That's one glass of wine. So I'd never yeah. drunk. I'd never drunk normally. And so I've never missed it because I... I, I couldn't do that thing that other people seem to be able to do. And the way I drank was messy. Wow. I mean that's so that's so remarkable um to have that ex, to have that experience. I mean I I consider on a frequent basis how I am how I am doing when it comes to alcohol intake. Yeah. Um I probably don't consider it as frequently as I consider my food intake, um, but um, which is, you know, which is funny because actually my food intake's really healthy, yeah. um, but I think about it all the time and I think that's part of the reason why. Um, I, I monitor myself less frequently with alcohol, but it's so interesting to hear your perspective on your journey with it and that kind of, you know, there, there, being, no, there being no middle ground. No. Um, which I think is so, so interesting. Um because I think people have this sort of expectation of that. You know, I've had a few friends who have struggled with alcoholism um, as opposed to, you know, um, and I think the distinction is really interesting between, you know, when alcoholism is actually the core the core issue yeah. versus, you know, that kind of broader sense of addiction being the problem because I'm not dealing with, because I'm not dealing with life. You know, I, you know, I think... Whilst there's probably a lot of crossover, I do think sometimes there are, you know, distinctions because I, 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 but I have a number of friends who have struggled with alcoholism who, who, you know, who, who so desperately want for there to be a middle ground because, (laughs) because they used to love, because they used to love being able to have a drink with their mates until it became too much and they couldn't just stop at one. And New Um, Zealand is such a drinking culture. It's, and I don't want to get into a debate about that, but, but in the sense of, in the sense of a lot of socializing, it's either let's get a coffee, let's get a drink. And for the majority of people, getting a drink means a couple of drinks. It's all good, you know, um, get together with friends and share a bottle of wine, having a nice meal. That's fine. But if you are struggling, um, 
it can it can feel like oh but I'll have no social life because everything revolves around alcohol but but for people that don't have a problem it can you know it can Mm. be hey let's go to a bar and have a couple of drinks and catch up and go home that's and then they're fine but um I still I, I mean it's probably not um, suggested, but after a certain amount of time without drinking, I, I had friends and we'd go out to bars. I just drank Red Bull, which I can't drink anymore either. But you know, and I would dance and I would enjoy it. And I, I didn't, I didn't want to drink. But I, it's, it, it is. I understand why people go, but, but what will I do? Because my friends X Y Z, you know. Um, mm. But they'd probably be surprised to find that there are a lot of people that don't do that, or that go surfing, or that go for a walk in the park mm. or you know it's different it's just different but yeah that middle ground some people just can't do the middle ground and I think that's what took me the four years to come to when I knew I had a problem it took me four years to really accept that the solution to my problem was not drinking full stop one day at a time god willing mm. for the rest of my life mm. and so at that point when you when you kind of acknowledge okay something has to change and it has Mm. to change drastically were you at that point sort of aware of the things that you're saying now which is that actually you know it wasn't necessarily that alcohol was the only addiction no no right so how I mean what happens when you what happens when you what's the process of changing your mind from being somebody who who doesn't want to deal with, I like how you put it, life on life's terms mm. um, and is and is using whether it's alcohol or or something else in its place. You know, how do you go about changing your mind from being a person who doesn't want to deal with life to being a person who does want to deal with it? Um, honesty, yeah. Um, being really honest, I thought I thought I would I believed my press. I believed I was incredibly um confident and you know I was probably the only person who rocked up to the treatment program smiling um I was like yeah cool here we are you know and 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 I got broken down in there um by being called on it you know and so that that was the start for me um there's a the 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 12-step programs are amazing um the way they're set out and the way they work is um it's miraculous, I think. Uh, and so, so, so it was just honesty, rigorous honesty for a start. Um, because when I couldn't put a Band-Aid on whatever was happening, whether it was fear or anxiety or um, depression or what am I doing with my life or whatever it was, when I couldn't put a Band-Aid on it in the form of alcohol, I had to deal with it in some way. Um, I had to deal with it emotionally. I had to deal with it spiritually. Uh, for me, I've got a a faith in, um, I, I mean, the 12 steps say, you know, something greater than ourselves. And I, I have a very definite understanding of who that is for me. Doesn't make it all perfect. Doesn't make it all right. But it, it means I'm not the center of the universe anymore. It means I'm ultimately not in control of everything. And I realized I was a bit of a control freak trying to control everything. Um and that takes a huge responsibility off my shoulders. You know, I'm responsible for my actions. I'm responsible for my thoughts. I'm responsible for what I do. But I'm not responsible for everything. And um, and so so when I stopped drinking, those were the, you know, important things to deal with life on life's terms. And, I, oh man, I did not always do it well. I had some 
emotional breakdowns along the way, but I didn't drink over it. it. Took me a long time to stop smoking. I smoked heavily cigarettes and then Diet Coke and then Red Bull. And I was like, yes, <laughs> putting all then Coca-Cola and putting all these things down. But um what I did pick up in later years was it was always my first love, which was food, you know, going back to that first thing and mm. um just sugar, 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 trying to get my dopamine up and um and my weight went up and up and up and my adrenals crashed and so so it was it became a physical problem then as well as emotional spiritual problem. Which I think is so scary when you start to dive into just a little bit of an understanding of how our bodies work, mm. the the drastic impact that that the, that effectively those natural uppers and downers mm. that we consume in our body, yeah. and just how much of an impact they can have on us, which is which is not to sort of pull any kind of pious position because you know I've I've been. I've been way bigger than I am now and I've also been a lot smaller than I am now and I've learned so much about food and yet I and how to feed my body well and how to you know manage stress with exercise and all of those things and I still can't you know get to that perfect weight that I would want to be um but it's so you know it's 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 crazy now to me that when I if I wake up and I'm having a down day or I wake up and I don't feel like I'm like I'm really on top of it. You know, mm. my, my first thinking is to go to the fridge and make myself a big, like I'll make myself a big spinach omelet because, <laughs> because I know that the vitamin mix and the minerals that are going to, that I can intake in that spinach is really going to help me, you know, kind of stabilize out. And, you know, some people probably go, oh, you're being a bit, you know, that's the placebo effect. But, you know, it's really, who it's cares? Really Who cares if it was the placebo effect? If it works, and it's—I mean—that's better than, you know. I used to wake up and literally go and eat half a tub of ice cream. So your option, placebo or not, is is going to benefit you in a way better way, and and that's that's a mature, healthy way to deal with to deal with it, you know. Well, and you know, I still, I still do, uh, I still do two glasses of red wine at the end of the night. So, you know, I'm probably making compromises at the end of the day when it comes to the when it comes to the healthy perspective. But I think, but is that I balance? Mean, I think that's balance, isn't it? Like maybe, yeah, it probably is. You know, I just think it's, yeah, I think you know, it probably is. I just think it's so interesting how how food really can be medicine, mm. and it can be good medicine or it can be bad medicine. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes I think we treat food, we talk a lot about food as good medicine. We talk about sugar as being the enemy, but maybe actually, you know, the, maybe the truest enemy is how we, or, or really the, the culprit is the way we think about food um, and the way that we, and the way that we use it, you know? So if we think about food as, oh, food's going to make me happy or food's yeah. going to make me you know, healthy or what have you, you know, it's just part of that kind of symptomatic of the or way we're good, thinking or about. Or it's bad. It's, it, we, totally. we attribute to food uh, moral characteristics. It's just food. Which is, <laughs> right, yeah, which is kind of funny. I mean, you wouldn't, I, you know, I don't think you wouldn't attribute um, moral characteristics or attributes to a two-year-old. No. So, you know, <laughs> like. Other than or, demanding. Or to, <laughs> egotistical 
Yeah, but you know, but they're cute. I mean, if if, if grown ups if grown ups behave the way that two year olds did, we would have an entirely different you know set of criteria for yeah, them. Yeah, you know, we would. We'd say things like you know, egotistical, narcissistic, completely self centered, unbelievably self absorbed. You know, completely dependent on other people, can't do anything for themselves. Okay, that's you an know, addict. List would- that's an addict. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> That was so but, yeah, but it's okay when you're two. Yeah. It's just that it's not so cute to want to grow out of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So how does so how does that you've spoken about? So you've spoken a little bit about that kind of that journey out of the alcohol and into sobriety. Um, but then you talked about you know a number of the other addictions, yeah. a number of those other things that you then substituted with. So what is that like? Yeah. Do you, do you ever get caught by surprise with what your latest um, Band-Aid has become? <laughs> I think when I stopped smoking, and that was about 14 or 15 years ago, I think that's when I was very conscious of the pattern and I realised I, I can't have one, you know, because I'd stopped before and then I'd go, I just have one. And, I, and that was the first time I went, I can't have one. And then um, I, I get sometimes surprised by what it is, like, I have to watch myself with kombucha. I mean, it's a health drink, right? But but I can I I can get a little heavy-handed on the kombucha sometimes, you know. Um, I don't I don't feel I have to stop it, but uh, yeah. So I mean, for me, the, the the energy drinks and the caffeinated drinks. I don't drink coffee, fortunately, because I never liked it, and that's a saving grace. It's something I don't have to stop. But um, but. <laughs> But but that that nature or I mean I hyper focus when I'm reading a book, it's like just the book and nothing else in the world but my book, you know. Um, so so I'm not addicted to books, but I, I do have a tendency to hyper focus. But um, but yeah, I, I think there's a sadness to some of the things. Like when I, one of the, I can't I can't quite remember what it was, but something I realized. Oh, Starbucks. I used to have um soy chai lattes right and I didn't realize they were they were caffeinated and highly sugared I just had chosen not to acknowledge that anyway I'd end up Mm. driving across town for one every single day and then a year and a half ago I just was like I'm addicted to these and I I don't want to have to give them up and I had a moment of it's not fair um you know it's it's not fair that that why why can't I just have something you know but I stopped. Mm, mm. I stopped, and I don't miss them. But it was it, it was that knowledge that led me. Um, probably two years ago, um, I I dieted and I'd lost weight, and then I'd put on weight, and then I'd lost weight and put on weight, and and you know I'd eat really like ridiculously healthy and clean, and then eat a tub of ice cream at night. Or um, and apparently that's quite common. Uh, you know, a common thing where people eat really well, but then at night or at some point during the day, just scarf it. You know, and. And I, I sat down and I thought, you know, it's been 30-something years that I've had a disordered relationship to food and I wonder if I can deal with it in the same way I dealt with alcohol. I wonder if there's, if it's, if it, I, if it's a sugar addiction for me and, um, and if it is, then it can be fixed. It can be, I can do something there is something can be done about this because I've seen it in so many other areas of my life that I don't have to be on a dieting roller coaster. So I started started a journey then to address food as an addiction, particular foods for me, and to mm. deal with the emotional, spiritual of that. And 
and um, and really, you know, there's there's a verse in the Bible that says, you know, we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But my focus wasn't my body. It was my mind. It was my soul. It was my spirit. And the, the, the bonus, the side effect is a physical recovery that I've experienced. I've lost probably 40 kilos. Um, and I don't talk about the kilos a lot. When I go on Instagram, I don't put that up because I think we get numbers thrown at us a lot. And people keep coming up to me and saying, you look amazing. You've lost weight. What have you done? And I, you know, years ago, that would have just filled me with joy and pride. And I find it really hard nowadays mm, for mm. two reasons. One, I've got my two daughters standing with me. I don't want them to have the message drummed into them that you look amazing, you've lost weight, is uh, a yeah, one and the same. Absolutely. But the other thing that the other thing too is people very comfortable to come up and openly discuss your physicality when it's positive. I mean, it would be totally a no-no if they came up and said, you have porked up, sister, what have you done? It would be shocking. And I know there's the there's that assumption that all women want to be told, oh, you've lost weight, you look great. It's actually kind of, I've found it, and this is because of the transformation in my mind, because as I said years ago, it's all I would have wanted to hear. I find it, I don't know what to say. I'm slightly uncomfortable by it. I mean, I, I appreciate, thank you, but, and and then they always say, what have you done? And the odd person I, I, I'm open with, they're kind of like, you know what, I think that could be a problem for me too. Like I think there's a starting to be an awareness of it being more that I just need to follow that Instagram to lose that weight or I just need to join that weight loss club to do that. I think, you know, mm-hmm. I think, and especially women over a certain age of like, you know, who have tried a few things, they've been around the block a few times. They're like, do you know what, I, I can relate to that. And um, and so, yeah, so addressing addressing it was the last bastion for me really the food um and again and in some respect maybe the first one too yep. you know like a full circle back to where some of those where some of those coping behaviors first came in absolutely right? deep deep ones but still still the same the same hoo-ha underneath you know what I mean the same stuff I didn't fully deal with when I stopped drinking the same stuff you know I hadn't dealt with because I'd still been eating and um and Mm, and you know mm. and and before it was all about weight loss Uh, but this was all about like the addiction and and those real underlying issues because if you've got a mountain of stuff it's like that's saying how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time so I ate maybe the elephant's hind legs when I stopped drinking alcohol I might have eaten a front leg when I stopped smoking and a trunk when I gave up something else but it was you know coming and I'm still on the journey like I'm still in the process of the transformation as we all are till the day we die but um but you know I'm eating away at that terrible pun eating away at the body okay that's (laughs) but you know I'm I'm addressing the elephant in a different you know one bite at a time and it's it's not just I think when I stopped drinking I was like I've stopped drinking great off I go whereas I I enjoy the process that I'm in now way more well and this and this is where I think you know that journey from external world to internal world or the exterior to the interior is like as you as you talk and as you describe what you are going through and even as you describe you know eating parts of the elephant really you know my mind just goes to each each of those processes each of those external each of those external things each of those band-aids that you're slowly working through is actually just taking you deeper and deeper into the interior Mm. world 
of what was you know of what has been driving that and I think when you, you know when you say when you talk about the renewing of the mind um, one of the things that I really firmly believe is that we get to a point in life where the thinking that we've relied on to get us to where we mm-hmm. are where we have an opportunity to recognize that that thinking cannot take us to the next space in life and so when you get to a point where you've you know, you've dealt with the external factors, you've dealt with the external coping behaviours, you've dealt with those, you know, whether they manifest themselves in an addiction or in, you know, bad behaviour or in poor relationship choices, whatever those things are, when you get to a point when you're like, wait a second, I can't keep just treating the external, mm. I need to get back to, you know, I need to I need to get back into the interior and change this from the inside out. That's, I think, where the most transformational um, processes can happen it's, when it comes to changing our mind, and it's the it's the only place the long term will will really happen. Like, like as for example, you know, people are like, oh, what have you done? They want a diet. They want, um, oh, I ate spirulina and lemon juice. They they kind of want that because I'd done all that and I I mm-hmm. looked at all that, but it it wasn't it wasn't um, permanent. You know, f- for me the only permanent transformation and like you were just saying is when you go into that internal um really and and that that that's genuinely your goal and the journey is about that internal like genuinely then then the external comes but but you know like like you're saying when we go in deep like that the the external almost doesn't matter so much because you, you're just peeling back all those layers and those false beliefs and those and you get to know yourself you know and like like you're saying whether it's addiction or whether it's a bad relationship or or whatever it is um you get some growth in there and then something happens and you don't deal with it in the way you used to that's gold that's like oh my gosh I think I just behaved like an adult and had a mature response to something um <laughs> you know did it feel uncomfortable at first like when you when you was there a point at which you were, you are able to look back on and think, yeah, that was the point at which I really had transformed the way I was thinking, um, and the, my perspective and approach to life. And and how did it feel? Hmm. I don't know because there's so many little things along the way. Um, I I think the fact that I think the fact for me that when people now comment on my physicality, there's a genuine oh, can we not within me? You know, it's. I think that for me is, is, is huge because I'm not as concerned. Like, as I said, that used to would have been my everything. Um, the fact that that's genuinely not so, it's not so important to me now is, and the compliments are lovely. I'm, I, I know it sounds weird, but it's, it's more like, oh, okay, you know, like I, okay, I don't know what to say to that. Whereas before that would have been, oh, thank you. Oh, you noticed, you know, so that, that's a huge one. And also um, just the, what I found I'm much better at doing is I don't second guess myself so much now. If I make a choice to do something or say something, I kind of stand behind it. And and, and I, I say dumb things as we all do and, and I have to apologize or make amends or whatever it is. But, but on the whole, I'm actually like, no, this is me. And and I love there's a there's a little thing on Instagram or Facebook or something that says, you know, you may not be everyone's cup of tea, but for the ones you are, you really are. And I think I've come to like a really great place with that, that, yeah, I don't have to be everyone's cup of tea. I don't have to fit in with the boat crew drinking. I don't have to, 
um, be a certain look to be on TV. I don't have to um, say the right things at church to fit in there or with my friends or, you know, I can be me and mm. whatever that is. And part of the transformation is kind of finding that. And 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 I'm actually a bit of an introvert, whereas I always thought I was an extrovert. And so, yeah, I, I was like, <laughs> oh, wow, I prefer to recharge on my own, but can get up oh. and talk to a lot of people or talk on the radio to a lot of people or do one-on-ones, but, yes. but not actually, mm-hmm. hey, let's be with everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about when you were, you talked about when you were drinking, not trusting yes. yourself. Um, and, and then to hear you say, you know, I, I, I know what I, I know what I actually think now and I can back that. Do you think that that's, I mean, do you think they're related? Um, yeah, yeah. I've just, I've cleared out so much debris. Um, I was just, I was, you know, Definitely when drinking, it was creating mini tornadoes every night, you know, and then having to clean up just that tornado the next day and then making another one. Whereas, you know, in sobriety and abstinence, I don't create tornadoes or or I create small windstorms, you know, Uh, but it sounds like I've got flatulence. Um, But that too, but, you know, let's be honest. But, but, you know, I I don't create those big dramas I used to. So I'm not trying to clear them up. I'm clearing up just my own poop, you know, in, in the sense of the deeper stuff. And so I've forgotten the question, but I think, <laughs> but, but I think um, yeah, it's a much more peaceful place. I think it, there's an enormous sense of, I think, well, my observation is anyway, there's an enormous sense of both peace and tranquility that happens when people have finally got to know themselves. Mm when they've finally uncovered their their truest self underneath all of the stuff and underneath all of the Instagram posturing and, you know, all of that, all of the pretense of how we look and how we want to be perceived and all of those things, when people have actually really come to know themselves, I think they, they become, um, they become kind of peaceful, tranquil people. doesn't mean that they can't not have a laugh and it doesn't mean that they're not able to throw a tantrum when they need to get their own way. But there's a there's a peacefulness and a, and a knowing of yourself that I think helps you come back to centre. Yeah. Uh, are there are there insights? Are there are there um, little strategies or tools that you use, you know, in the day to day or on a regular basis that help you um, that help you kind of stay the course? I mean, it's a long. Um, it's you've you've been sober for a really long time and you've not been smoking for a really long time and um and now kind of you know two years on from from the 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 sugar thing and dealing with some of the 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 food addiction stuff but how do you I mean how do you maintain a trajectory and a momentum in that direction for such a long period of time without losing (laughs) your mind oh but I do Tash I do lose my mind um I think it's 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 a, it's a one day at a time and um, and I can feel when I'm not doing the things I need to do. Um, I, I do start getting more emotional and I still I get a little bit, you know, into the future in my head and why isn't this happening and I can't make this happen and da-da-da. Um, but for me, uh, you know, the 12-step program at heart is, is, is a spiritual program and, and so for me keeping that connection with my God, my God and my understanding is – is enormous and that's chatting chatting to him through the day and it's 
remembering to hand stuff over that I don't I don't need to sort out. I have a um for for, for alcohol and cigarettes, it's it's a don't pick them up. It's simple, but you got to eat right. So I do have I do have a food plan. For me, it's sugar. I don't go near refined sugar because if I have some, I have no doubt I'll want a lot more. And like over the last couple of weeks, I've been just feeling a bit down. I had to have a lot of antibiotics this year, and I think it's really mucked my system. And so I made this slice thing I make, and it's really healthy, and it's it's doesn't have refined sugar. And usually, I can have a little bit of it. And I made it the other day and I had quite a lot of it. And I realized when I'm vulnerable, like I feel at the moment, you know, just needing to take a bit more care of myself, I can't even go near that. So it's being, again, real, really honest. I keep in touch with other people who um, share similar issues and, you know, we're really different in so many ways, but we can talk about the stuff together and giving it away. Like I love, like I, I feel really honored to do this with you today. It's the first time I've really spoken about it um I've really wanted to but you know just to I'm totally happy to but um to have a place to really to talk about it really solidifies it in my mind as well and reminds me of of how important it is for me to keep doing the things I've done if I want to keep what I've got yeah and I I mean the thing that strikes me in your story and I'm so grateful for you um, being willing to share it and to share it with such, you know, kind of honesty and transparency is that, you know, from 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 all outward appearances, you know, if we go back to that idea of the, you know, the exterior mm-hmm. and the interior, from all outward appearances, you know, your whole life has been about performing, has been about um, creating content, telling stories, uh, and so much of that world is driven, you know, I think by a really unhealthy understanding of, you know, mm. what beauty is and how, and how, you know, we, how we particularly as women need to be in relation to our bodies and in relation to food and in relation to, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's fine to be seen, you know, drinking a martini and um, sucking on a cigarette, but don't you dare be seen with anything other than a salad on your fork. And, you know, some of that culture, I think, um, you know, is so pervasive, but he, but here you are in the midst of that, you know, you, you have been in that world, you've been, um, in that TV space and you've been in the radio space where, you know, so much of it is just focused on that outward appearance and, and the outward brand and the mm. outward persona. And yet, you know, the reality of who you are is actually this person who's deeply connected to her real self and deeply connected to the things that you've had to overcome to get there. And you're not necessarily, you know, trumpeting that around like a badge of honour, but rather kind of holding it quite humbly, I think, to say, well, look, here's what I've, here's what I've learned and here's what I've had to keep learning and here's what I've had mm. to keep doing. Um, and I think that there's some, there's some value in that, Thanks, I think, um, given, the, given the world that, mm. that you live in. Um, is, that, is, that, is it intimidating? Do you ever feel, do you feel like that, do you feel like your job creates an occupational hazard? <laughs> For you when it comes to the way you feel about food in your body? I think I already felt that. Um, I, as I said before, when I look back on some of the shows I did, and I don't know how I felt at the time, you know, that I felt so, oh, I'm so big, and I, I, mean, I was tiny, you know, or, oh, I've got a wrinkle, or whatever it was. I, I would have felt like that whether I was on TV or not. I don't think there was anyone who, um, who ever said anything to me. And when I was doing the Go Show, which was a kid's show, I was putting on weight on that and um, all credit to my executive producer. She was a woman. She never said anything. I, I, you know, she she was really good about it. Um, 
I, I think I carried that within me anyway. Uh, so, so I, I, I think, I think if if I can say something about it now and it helps someone, I think that's that's really important because whether we're in TV or in the media or not, I think so many women just really struggle with that. Their, their worth being what they look like or, um, and I'm going back into that, you know, getting back into it now, but older and I'm more like, oh, I got me some wrinkles. And um, and the people who are getting some of the jobs I used to are reality show contestants, not, not you know, trained and, and more power to them and they, they're great at it. There's no criticism, but it's a different world. And so I have to constantly check myself on that. You know, now it's like, okay, I'm a bit older. That's okay. There's a place for me and it might be different than what it was. And and also I think now I've got something to say, whereas at the time I didn't know myself very well to be able to say anything. So, I, and again, I guess that's the not having the control over everything. You know, I could try and hustle and, and get back and doing exactly, you know, get back doing exactly what I was doing, but but I'm kind of a different person and maybe I've got something else to offer now. So, Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. I've so appreciated it. Thank you. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best place to find you? Probably easiest on Instagram. I'm underscore Catherine Sylvester underscore. And then the, there's a link in my bio for other stuff. But yeah, pro- I think Instagram's probably the easiest nowadays. I had someone say, women over 40 only use Facebook. And I'm like, I object. I use Instagram. But um, <laughs> I think Instagram's the easiest place, you know, to to kind of connect and and go from there fantastic we'll put the links in the podcast episode page and of course then people are going to go and um see you on instagram and realize what a incredibly beautiful when you are inside and out so thank you so thanks, much Tash. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transformationist. We hope that the journey doesn't stop here. For more information about this episode and materials we referenced, please visit thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group for more conversation about this week's episode. Just search for The Transformationist by Tash McGill on Facebook. This episode was written and produced by Tash McGill with production support from Truthwork Media and music is by Hans Van Vliet. The Transformationist is brought to you by Solofita Consulting and TashMcGill.com.